You're listening to The Weekend Take, and now your host, Sean Schaefer. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Weekend Take. I'm your host, Sean Schaefer, and joining me this week is actor, writer, director, and good friend of mine, Billy Kay. Billy, how are you doing this week? Uh, I'm hanging in there, Sean. How about you? How are you doing? Doing all right. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm glad we got past our uh, technical funk when we were trying to get on here, but we got to figure it out. Two heads are better than one in that case. That's right, and I think it's only fair to tell your audience that you know you are popping my podcast cherry right now. <laughs> well, I'm sure it's uh, valuable information for them to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it is. So, Billy, I asked you to come on to the to the show because you know we've known each other for a while now. I, I shot your your film Swiped, which is coming up uh, on completion soon. During the course of filming it and our time knowing one another, uh, I've learned an awful lot about you, and you're a very interesting person. And you've got one hell of a history in this business, so I I thought that'd be something worth sharing with the audience. So I, I invited you on and. I'd like to talk about that with you, if that's okay today. Yeah, that'd be great. My, my history in the business is certainly unique. The first question is, so Billy, how long have you been in the business as an actor? You started as an actor. So how long have you been in the business as an actor? Well, let's say just about 35 years. Well, 35 years, but uh, you're about my age. I'm 36. So how, how could you have possibly been doing this for 35 years now? Well, we can thank my mother for that. <laughs> All right. Well, so what? What did you get your start in? What was your What was your first role? And, and I guess how old were you? Well, I'll break down the story for you. I was around six weeks old uh, here on Long Island, and my mother was taking me to a local King Cullen grocery store, and she was pushing me around in the cart. And uh, this woman uh, who ran this company uh, in New York City called Star Management uh, approached my mother and thought that I had a good look for commercials. Uh, I, I was a very large baby with a very big head, you know, and, I, and, and I've come to realize in the business that, you know, having a big head, you know, not only in the messed up sense, but the physical sense is important for, you know, commercials. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but the woman approached my mother, she said, you know, he's got the look, would you, would you give it a try? My mom was also an actress, and she was uh, uh, more in the Broadway world. And she kind of knew the ins and outs and was a little bit hesitant to put me into the business. But uh she got a call for a, a diaper commercial, which is what we call a cattle call. And my mom said she was she was working in Manhattan, and uh, she got off of work or took off lunch and took me over there. And there was like almost two hundred kids. She had to wait, you know, quite a long period of time before I went in. And she kind of made a little promise to herself, and she t- still tells me she said, you know, after all this time, she's like, if he doesn't get this one, you know, I'm not going to waste my my time or his. And I just happened to get that first commercial, and that was my entrance in the show business. All right. So it started very young before, before you even had, had memory of what was going on. Your mother was a, an actor as well. You said in the more for the stage as opposed to scream. Yeah. More musicals. Yeah. She did a whole bunch of musicals with some pretty uh, cool cats back in her day. And she left the business around the time she was 19 because my, my grandparents being European and my mom was the first born in the country. And uh, my grandfather said to my mother, you know, this, you're doing great. And this, this, artist world, but you need to get a real job and uh, do something with your life. So you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer, pick one. So my mom kind of left the business then. Oh, wow. Two things of that. One, so you said your mother did a lot of musicals. One, I feel deprived because I don't think I've ever heard your mother's singing voice. Yeah, my, my mom can sing. She, she's a belter. She's like uh, Ethel Merman for, for those who remember who that late great Broadway star was. And two, what a difference in approach 
between your mother's upbringing and yours, where at 19, her parents were telling her, hey, you need to get a real job. And here you are six weeks old. And I'm sure even as you progressed in the industry, she was she was always very supportive of, of your endeavors, I imagine. Yeah, she was my first manager and definitely the most persistent and passionate person in my life. And she still is and has always been my uh, advisor along the way. Uh, I think you've learned and anybody who is in this business knows that people you trust and can trust are, are the most valuable. Absolutely. I mean, for me, it was my grandfather and my grandmother because my mom and dad, well, my dad was never really in the picture, but my mom and dad, they were very hesitant to me coming out of high school and saying, I want to be in the film industry and be a cinematographer. And when I started doing like the first three years, I did anything. I wasn't getting paid for any of it. I was just learning. They kind of looked down at it a little bit and they wanted me to get a real job, something that paid. And you know, I just kept pushing through, but it was my grandmother and my grandfather who were very supportive of me and told me I could do it and actually put my first camera in my hands. So I, I agree 100%. You know, the, the people that surround you, that support you are key people in your life, both personally and professionally. Yeah, in, in a business that's more involved with the interview process, you know, like most people who don't work in the business you know, hate job interviews and, and dread the thought thereof. You know, you sign up to be an actor, your your entire life basically becomes a job interview. <laughs> so. That it does. So you started before really memory. So I guess, um, what is the first role that you actually can look back and, and remember? What's your first memory of being on set? That's a damn good question. I still remember, but probably around the time I was like, between like eight and 10, I started to realize that other kids weren't leading the life that I was leading when I was at school. When I, when I was around other kids at auditions and everything, I just kind of thought that, you know, this is what kids do. You know, this is like another game that people play. And uh, I think about the time I was 10, you know, I, I was on a commercial set. Actually, I can remember, I can actually remember back doing probably early modeling jobs. I did a lot of modeling, what, what we call print work. And uh, this is the days before the internet when, uh, my mom and my grandmother dragged me around on what we call go sees. And back then you would just go to places and, you know, get your Polaroid taken and that's it. You know, you go, you go job to job to get a Polaroid and they call you if they want you. And uh, yeah, I, I, my earliest memory is probably on a print set, you know, being shooting with models and, you know, big flashes of light, huge cameras and assistance. And then I remember uh, switching over to commercials. And I think I started really being aware of what was going on when uh, I started talking. In that interim from the, the diaper commercial at, you know, six, seven, eight weeks old to that print ad where you can recall, what did your work entail? Like, what, how much of a resume had you built by the time you were aware of what you were, you were doing? I, I built quite a resume and I still have my old portfolios to this day. And uh, a lot of the stuff is on my website that I decided to share with people too. It's crazy. I probably did a couple thousand print ads. By the time I was 13 or 14, I'd done over 200 national network commercials. Um, I've done many voiceover uh, segments. Uh, I had done student films and I'd also done soap operas by the time, by that, by the time I was 10 too. If I remember from our conversations as well as a young uh, infant or, or toddler you made your appearance in I believe it was it was three men and a baby yes yeah I was I was a, a background actor in that I don't, I don't have any uh, or a toddler at that point I don't have any recollection uh, of it but it is on my resume it's nice to have <laughs> don't really can't really tell you any Tom Selleck stories <laughs> I wish I wish I could that'd be great 
I, if anything, at that age, you would remember that man's mustache because that man had a mustache. But let, let's fast forward to like 2015, and I think uh, that was the last guest star appearance that I made on on National Network, and I did a uh, Blue Bloods. But I, Donnie Wahlberg was the scenes that I had all my all my work with. But I did get to see Tom Selleck again. I did not approach him and say, "Hey, do you remember me from Three Men and a Baby?" So it, there was nothing awkward like that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, remember me? I was I was. I, I was a toddler in Central Park being pushed around in the carriage, you know. <laughs> Looking back at this point, you, you said you did numerous print ads and, and commercials. You know, and there's always those like commercials that, at least for me growing up, that I, I recall. Were there any particular national spots that people nostalgic for for television of the time would would recall? Yeah, it's kind of crazy if, if somebody went on like a YouTube uh, binge hunting my old commercials. Uh, I, I've discovered that they are out there and it's kind of frightening, but um, the, the ones that really come to memory are this Tonka truck commercial that I did. That was huge. I think they picked it up twice or three times, you know, they renewed the commercial and I still have it like the original old Tonka truck. I was the Tonka boy smashing it in the, in the gravel pit. That's one I remember well. And kids at school were always like, you hear the Tonka truck kid. It's kind of weird. And then I remember I did a, a, a national spot for Wendy's with Hayden Penetary, the now successful actress who I later worked with in my soap opera career. But uh, we did two versions of a chicken nugget commercial for Wendy's where I go, who ate my nuggets? <laughs> and Hayden Penetary goes, Dave Thomas. <laughs> and, we, and I got to meet Dave Thomas. So Dave Thomas casted me for, for it. We shot the first one at Silver Cup Studios. I remember that. And then when we shot a, a renewal of the commercial, they flew us to Miami where they had a studio there and we shot the second one there. I, God, I did so many commercials. It's, it's like hard to remember, like everything from Red Lobster to like Hungry Hungry Hippos, like the game, you know, <laughs> Mouse Trap, you know, those board games from when we were kids. Oh, yeah. Things like that. Yeah. It's funny you, uh, you kind of mentioned it in passing. What was life like for you as a kid going to school, knowing that the other kids at school would see you on television? Oh, it was terrible terrible you weren't you weren't like the most popular kid in school because like you were the kid that was on tv absolutely the complete opposite really yeah huh yeah as far back as i can remember you know think about it i I live here i live on long island and uh well before i moved to la and then i'm back in long island now but my mom had to drive me and commute to manhattan to take me to auditions so i mean i got taken out of school at least three days a week if not more you know getting picked up early and they'd announce over over the loudspeaker, you know, they call they call your name and, and, and all the kids be like, oh, the actor boy, Hollywood. Huh. Yeah, yeah, that's what it was like. And I actually, I had a hard time making friends, you know, uh, some some of which are still my friends today, but the most part it was pretty rough because we all know how rough kids can be and I don't have any resentment towards them, but kids are the meanest, man. They speak their mind and they're jealous of things they don't understand or that they want. And I personally was not like that. I was very innocent. I never thought of myself as being you know, superior, like a lot of these actors have that mentality. Uh, I have to say one of my downfalls maybe is that I, you know, have been too humble about my, uh, about my abilities throughout my career, but that didn't come to my mind and realization till later in life. As a kid, it was, it was difficult. You're listening to The Weekend Take. Visit our Patreon page to become a patron of The Weekend Take. And for as little as $1, you'll receive exclusive content and perks. Hmm. See, so you don't usually hear about it. In that regard, because like I see like, okay, so for instance, this latest season of Stranger Things, 
at the end, Dustin finally talks to his girlfriend who's like across the country or something like that. Well, the girl who plays that part and she only shows up for that like five minute segment of the final episode is is from local to me. And she came back to town and they, they did this, had this big hoopla about it and made a huge news story of her. And it's like you hear about that, but you're never led to think that, you know, the opposite uh, exists, like the experience that you went through is a thing like you would just think, oh, well, here in this country where we value celebrity over a lot of what's going on in real life, you would think that, uh, yeah, that you'd be highly regarded. I think you just said it. You got to put it in the time, you know, before the Internet, things were a lot different. <laughs> people weren't looking to exploit these things or to, to get selfies with people. It was a, it was a whole different world then. Yeah. So you mentioned soap opera. So what point did you begin your soap opera career and what uh, what soap opera were you a part of? Well, I'm, I'm proud to say that I have my six degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon, <laughs> thanks to Guiding Light, because he began his career on that show. And uh, I believe Meg Ryan as well. My soap opera career before then, I was a reoccurring role on a show that was on called Another World. And that was my first time in the soap. I'd then done mostly um, after that, mostly commercial work, you know, that's where the money is, you know, in, in the business. So my agents always focused on that. And then I had a desire to start doing theater a little bit later. Uh, and I was doing that a lot. And then I started getting back into legit work and I got an audition for Guiding Light. And uh, I booked uh, a regular as the lead woman. Uh, Reva was her character, this actress by the name of Kim Zimmers, amazing, amazing actress. Uh, and I started playing her son and I was on the show for uh, a number of years, I believe, a little more than three years. Oh, wow. To this point, you mentioned print ads and commercials and this television show, this soap opera, but, and you said you mentioned a few student films. Had you done any that you can recall, any full like feature films up to this point? Uh, I, I don't believe so, besides being background work. So no principal work uh, up until this point. But you had done feature work as background, yeah. And following this. So I guess how different is it being on set for a television program versus being on set for for a film. I know things move typically much faster in television. Yeah. I say all three are different. And, you know, uh, the first independent feature I had a, a, a pretty nice role. And I remember was this weird little B movie called Nathan Grimm. It was like a, a gangster detective Dick Tracy kind of movie. And I played a newsboy in the 1920s and uh, they shut down all of uh, two streets in lower Manhattan and uh, you know, with period cars and everything, it was my first experience being in wardrobe and period wardrobe and, uh, it took my breath away. And being on a real film set is so much different than working in a soap opera. I mean, the scheduling and how they treat the material and basically how they control the content is very different. I think, you know, being in the film industry that, you know, every day, every page of every line of dialogue is precious. In the soap opera world, it's it's not really like that. <laughs> well, I mean, especially, yeah, not when you're trying to produce, you know, half an hour to an hour of content five days a week. Yeah, it, what a trip. You know, when, when you work in a soap opera studio, you come in in the morning, you, you've already gotten your script beforehand, obviously, and you hopefully you've done your homework. And there's always revisions on uh, a soap opera set. There are revisions and features too. But as you know, more more revisions in, in studio features than independents because independents can't afford to be making you know last minute changes. But when you, when you go into a soap opera stage in the morning, you get there, ass crack of dawn. Yeah, you go down to this rehearsal space with all these actors sipping on their coffee and you do a walkthrough kind of of what the director of the day wants to do. And then uh, you're basically in wardrobe and sitting sitting in the hot seat 
until they bring you in and you do a very, very quick uh, camera rehearsal. Nothing like film where, you know, you're doing these huge lighting adjustments and everything like that. You pretty much get there and, and they'll take the first take, hmm. even if it's bad. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm serious. I, I learned after being on the show for a couple of years and working with a bunch of great divas, especially the woman who played my mother. And I remember this story once when uh, my career was outside of the soap opera was beginning to rise and, and, and I was more cocky and, and willing to take risks. <laughs> I started to, you know, not like the fact that, you know, they would take a take that was shit. <laughs> so, and I realized that the, the, the divas around there, you know, if they did a line they didn't like, you know, or something, they, they throw in like shit or, you know, an F-bomb or something in there to, to stop the take and they'd be forced to stop. So one day I was doing a scene and I remember coming down my stairs in my living room and, uh, the exchange was messed up and I was like, oh, shit. And they were like, oh, cut. And we did it again. And then the woman, Kim Zimmer, looks at me before we start shooting the second take. And she's like, you little shit. She's like, you pay too much attention. <laughs> <laughs> I learned it from watching you, TV mom. <laughs> TV mom taught me, man. And I worked with Joan Collins, too, the, the fantastic Joan Collins on Guiding Light. One of the few people I was starstruck to meet in my life. You know, because she had such a career up to that point and even now still today. And what a professional. She'd get like two to three pages changes right before going on and she'd be off book and ready to do it in no time. I mean, it was brilliant to watch. So you you were on kind of for a few years. I mean, yeah. and, and that you mentioned that experience. I mean, were there any other particular experiences that, that stand out or any? Uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll drop another Hayden Panettiere story. You remember I said I met her on the show later in life. So we'd already met doing the the chicken nugget commercials. And now here we are as relatives on the show. And her mom was always, always around. And, and I guess I'd already been labeled as, you know, like a bad boy, you know, I was always the rebel. And uh, I remember like Eminem's, the Marshall Mathers LP had just come out and I was still working on the show. And uh, I was like going into her dressing room and playing it for young Hayden. And her mom came in, <laughs> saw what I was playing for her and she kicked me out and never allowed me to talk to her again. <laughs> <laughs> and I ran into her years later when I lived in LA and I got tested for this, this thing that she was doing and I got to see her again. And it was kind of this weird show business, awkward moment, you know, because when you work with actors, they'll be like sometimes five years, a fucking decade can go by before you see them again. And then you're just like, Oh, do we just pick it up where we left off? <laughs> did you hear Did you hear any inappropriate music lately? You know, I was just thinking, cause you're talking about Hayden's mom. So did you like encounter a lot of these, like, like showbiz moms, either at auditions or... Stage moms? Oh, yeah, absolutely. How was your mother when it came to... You said she managed you, so uh, I'm sure she always had your best interests in mind, both as a manager and a mother. Did she ever kind of get that, that stage mom vibe, or was she always a, a straight-laced professional? I'll say that, you know, every mother of a, of a child actor is going to have their moments, and, and I think that goes without exception. And my mom... It's in that category too. But I'll say that 90% of the time she was totally cooler than any of the other moms there. And if she had something to say that was critical about me and about what I had done, or maybe the way I carried myself in an audition, she would tell me afterwards, most of the time, go to great lengths to keep me away from the troublemakers. So I thank her for that until I became the troublemaker. And then there was nothing she could do. <laughs> One of the things that always comes up when people hear the term child actor is that they think about people like uh, Macaulay Culkin and John Taylor Thomas and the list goes on and on. And there are a number of horror stories. Like I, I believe like Macaulay was one of the more 
well-known ones because his parents, unbeknownst to him, basically swindled them for most of what he had. And after that, they had to put protections in place. But I mean, I know you and I and I know your mother, so I'm sure that she always sought out to make sure that you were well taken care of, you know, moving moving on through through childhood into adulthood. It wasn't Oh yeah. I never had any need for anything, that's for sure. My mom was always always good for that. But uh, the horror stories that I recall are, are more of, I've seen mothers, you know, slap their kids and yell at them coming out for not remembering their lines, you know, uh, seeing them crying and not wanting to go in and they shake them and force them to go into the room. I mean, these are real things. And I promise you they happen today, but they probably happen behind in the bathroom where no one could get their cell phone camera to film it. When I was a kid, there was no cameras around filming anything. So it's a big difference. Yeah. I mean, I always get that vibe. I mean, you know, my daughter's eight and she watches a lot of the Disney programming and I see all these Disney kids. And, and even when she was growing up and even when my, my younger brother was growing up, he watched because there's 17 years between us, he would watch these same kind of like the, the Disney kids. And there's a really good ratio of ones that turn out okay and then ones that turn out into complete train wrecks. And it's like, where did it go off the rails You know, for them? But I mean... I don't know. I think well, whether you're successful or not in this business, you can't help but be mentally scarred. It's just inevitable because you're working in a business once again. I mean, if we want to get into the nit and gritty of it, which is auditioning again, and an actor's life is 99.9% rejection. Hmm. Whether you're just starting or whether you're Robert Downey Jr. He may not have to go go into an audition, but you know his name comes across a list and it's only going to be one name at the end of the day, right? Right. That does a number on people. I mean, to keep your confidence up and to be able to bury your sadness and uh, frustrations with your career is probably the most unrecognized character of an actor's life. And I think the ones who are good at that are the ones who have the integrity to make it and to, to, to keep pushing forward. This business will break you down and split your molecules down to the atom. <laughs> it's, it's what it's designed to do. In your auditioning experience, was there any particular role that you went out for that you wanted more than anything that, that you didn't get? Do you Is there a particular role that you recall auditioning for? Oh, yeah. Maybe the story of my life. I've been the second choice for so many choice films throughout my life. And, of course, there, there are regrets. And I, anyone who says they didn't close their eyes and imagine themselves getting it instead is a liar. So... I remember, remember the movie that Mel Gibson did, The Patriot? Yeah. The young, one of the young sons, I, I was down to the wire on that, screen testing and being up at, uh, I think it was Sony or one of the, one of the big uh, HQs in New York City and, uh, and sitting there that last minute, almost got it, didn't work out. Jeez, so many of them. There's different ways people can react to rejection. You said an actor's life is 99.9%, you know, rejection. Over time, you've, you've weathered yourself and made yourself be able to to forge ahead but what do you do like so say you're talking to an actor who's just coming up and they've just gotten their first rejection like what would be the best thing you could tell them to not give up and to keep pushing forward like what what do you do when when faced with rejection well i'll say the the two things my mother told me that that i tell everyone and i could i could never forget is that um you know you could go on 99 auditions and not get anything but when you get that hundredth one those other 99 fall by the wayside. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that uh, <laughs> to remember uh, when you go in and audition and meet casting directors and you're caught into the bureaucracy of, of casting is that, you know, casting directors and directors, my mom would always say, they never remember the good. They only remember the bad. 
So keep on doing good so they don't think of you as bad. Sounds simple, but this is this 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 was a message to a child, and I took that with me through my whole life. And I had the luxury of of having my career built for me before I was even aware of it. And so many actors did not have that advantage that I had. So I'm I'm very grateful for that. And most people have to start out from the get-go. I was I was four years old when I got my my SAG card in 1989. I mean, it's great advice because I mean, even people now that are full-grown adults who audition and don't get a part i've seen some pretty nasty results from that oh definitely i've seen the temper tantrums of a child from an adult oh i can i if if i could you know if we had the camera that follows us through life i'd love to make a movie of myself you know when i was living in la and at the height of my my auditioning career uh and i was always that one if i felt like i had a good performance i'd be on the phone with my agent by the time i'm in the elevator before i walk out the door telling them to call in for me and get feedback and you know fight for me, you know, putting up my little tantrums and, and every actor does. And that's what agents and managers have to deal with is the ego. The ego has to be stroked because if the ego is not strong, then not going to give a good performance. You're listening to the weekend take visit our Patreon page to become a patron of the weekend take. And for as little as $1, you'll receive exclusive content and perks. Getting back onto our, our chronological track. You've done your, your stint for, for Guiding Light. I'm sure you're not like an everyday on the set uh, for that. So, I mean, are you, are you auditioning for other parts? Are you going out for other commercials during all of this? Oh, yeah. I was going on four or five auditions a day at the peak, you know, otherwise at least, you know, three to four a week. How understanding or conducive schedule-wise is something like a television show when you are still, you know, actively auditioning for things? Like, do you have to plan accordingly to like know ahead of time what days you're needed on set to schedule with auditions or yep. if you book something, do you have to worry about scheduling conflicts or how does, who handles that? Is that a manager thing or is that something you have to handle? That, that's a, that's an agent thing. Okay. Yeah. And I, I've been lucky enough to have an agent, you know, I've, I've, I've had some marvelous agents throughout my life and, and several managers and each experience taught me a lot. And I've learned that the actor can only do so much. And when you're, when you're really a pro in the game, your team is the people communicating on your behalf, kind of like a lawyer speaking for you uh, in the courtroom. It's no different. It's always better to have the agent make the call for you because nobody wants a desperate actor calling a casting office and begging for something. It's just not attractive to people in the business. No. And that goes back to that. They'll remember the bad. They won't remember the good. This is what I mean. You got to develop the relationship with these casting directors and they, they are the key holders. When you first start off and you're not as well known, you go on what's mostly called pre-reads. And uh, if the casting director or maybe probably one of her interns or assistants is looking through headshots and, and looking through agents, uh, client lists, and, and they pull people off and they say, hey, I, I think this one might do it. And then you go in and they don't know who you are and they give you a pre-read where you go in and just read for maybe the assistant, maybe not even the casting director. And if you pass that first test, then you get to go on the audition and then you get a callback and you know the process goes on. Uh, but as you get known by these casting directors, they already know who you are. So when somebody would scream over to the desk, hey, what about Billy Kay for this? They go, okay, yeah, bring him in. No, and that's all it is. And the most important part is having that you know, warmth associated with your name. You know, if you go in there and you 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 cause a fit or have some bad auditions that uh, that leave a bad taste in their mouth, they're gonna have a. I mean, there's less likely a chance they're gonna call you back in, and that's the reality of it. Despite how large the industry is and the number and the population of people that uh, work within it, it really is a a small world. The industry is global, but 
it still is a very small world. Word travels fast about names and reputations. Uh, I've learned in my you know my tenure doing it, not nearly as long as your tenure in the business, but I'm sure that's something that you could agree with. Oh yeah, definitely. When the time came to end your tenure on Guiding Light, was that just a a writer's decision or were you moving on to do something else or what, how did that come about? They replaced me with an older, more buff version of myself. Were they just kind of like time jumping on the age of the character at that point? Uh, yeah. And, and I also never signed um, a contract with them. Uh, uh, I was a reoccurring uh, day player, so I'd always come back and I never wanted to sign a contract because my film career, my TV career was beginning to percolate during that time. So for me, it wasn't really anything much. I knew how the business was and I knew they were aging my character. So I held it down for three years, which is a good long run for a teenage role on any soap opera. Yeah. I grew up watching uh, Young and the Restless and Bold and the Beautiful with my my grandmother, because uh, I said I was raised a lot by, by my grandparents. So I spent a lot of time with them. So I still see characters now from 25 years ago that were on the show that are they're still doing it. Oh, they're still doing it. <laughs> If that option, well, it sounds like it's not one you would have went with, but if that option was was given to you, was it, would that have been one that you would have taken? Would you have been, you know, like on Young and the Restless, there's the Newmans and Victor and Nick have been on the show for 20 years now. But if that was something that was placed before you, would that have been something that you would have taken them up on? Are you speaking of at that time or now? At that time. Uh, I don't think there was anything in the world you could have done to my teenage self to convince me that I wanted a soap opera career. You know, that's just the truth. I, I, I wanted to be in movies. Okay. So they age your character. You, you've left Guiding Light. Where does Billy Kay go next at that point? Right around that time, when I was still on Guiding Light, I booked this film in 1999 uh, called The Newcomers. It's a B-movie uh, that starred um, Jeff Fahey. Are you familiar with the movie The Lawnmower Man? Yep. Actually, uh the uh, the director for Fighting for Freedom, the film I did, I shot with Bruce Stern and Kristana Loken, was directed by Farhad Mann, who directed the sequel to Lawnmower Man. Right, cool. And I was a big fan of the original as well. Oh, I loved it too. When, when I, I got cast as Jeff Fahey's son in the movie as this as this uh, overall wearing, um, you know, hillbilly kind of character. We shot it in Vermont. I was a part of this gang of three kids. It was me. Uh, Josh Peck, are you familiar with him? Who did Nickelodeon and then, you know, is a comedian now. Yep. He was a big fat heavy set kid when we were young. Yep. Drake and Josh. Drake and Josh, yeah. And uh, and Paul Dano. That was Paul Dano's first movie was The Newcomers with me. It wasn't my first film. I'd done several films before then. We were up in the ranks and, and another two other supporting actors in the film were Kate Bosworth and Chris Evans. This is a real collection of... <laughs> of talent. <laughs> yeah. Of, of talent before anybody knew who the hell they were. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, uh God, I, it's a very vivid memory in my mind. I was working on a guy line and then, you know, uh, I got the time off to go to Vermont to sh- shoot this movie. Taught me a lot. The movie never really came much of anything, but later on, it's kind of funny. I, I have the very last copy of the film that was found online. <laughs> One DVD. <laughs> and, and it's so funny because on the cover is chris evans and kate bosworth and their name's big and they only have like you know like minimal lines throughout the whole film you know it's that classic thing like marilyn monroe like when they find the movies that she was in you know before she was famous then she's on the cover now it's funny how the business will resurrect these these b movies because of the people who are in it i was working on that film and uh then shortly after that i booked the movie called lie which would 
changed my life forever and would put me working with Paul Dano again right afterward. So LIE for Long Island Expressway is as... Directed by Michael, Michael Cuesta. Uh, it was his first, um, he was a very successful commercial director beforehand uh, from my hometown of Huntington. And <clears throat> it was his first feature. And he went on later to create Six Feet Under and I believe directed the first season and then created Dexter and directed the first season of that as well. Two of my wife's favorite shows. Two of my favorite shows too. So it seems, again, going back to that, you know, large industry, but small world, mm -hmm. a lot of these paths kind of intersect. So you've had three of these intersecting points in time, you know, over your career with Hayden. And here you are, you did newcomers with Paul Dano was in it. Mm -hmm. And now you find yourself doing LIE with Paul Dano. Now, was that strictly by coincidence or do you think the, the talking about these casting directors, do you think they, they saw something in the two of you being in that film and put you on this or how do you, how does that work out? Like is tons of films are made every year that have casts spread out everywhere, but here's a situation where you guys have now been paired in the, the same cast, you know, two films in a row now. How, how does that come about? Well, it's funny because I knew Paul before we did newcomers too. I, I was, pursuing musical theater work. And Paul had been on Broadway in this music musical called Ragtime. And uh, we had crossed paths many times uh, at auditions for, for musicals. So that's how I first met Paul. And I saw him on Broadway uh, in the show Ragtime. LIE was casted by this woman named Judy Henderson, who's still a very big casting director in New York. Like you said, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. The list is very short. So I don't care if you're going to Judy Henderson or going to Joe Schmo on, uh, on the Upper West Side, you know, because you're going to see the same people on the signing sheet <laughs> because when you're in that group age group, especially when you're young and you're in that age bracket, you're going to see the same talent again and again and again. So it wasn't a shock to me at all to be working with Paul, but it was nice to see him. That audition, it's funny because I went in auditioning for the lead role, which was Paul's role of Howie. And I got a call back and Judy called me back in. And this time uh, Michael Cuesta was in the room with uh, one of the producers and Judy. I remember very well giving him my read. And then right afterwards, he, he looked at me and said, he said, would you mind, uh, would you read the role of Gary? And I had just read the script and Gary was in the casting breakdowns as they wanted someone either black or Latino. And I was like, you want me to read that one? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he laughed and he said to me, he's like, he's like, do you need a couple minutes to, uh, to look over it? I said, no, I read the script. Let, let's just do it. And I switched gears and instead of being the innocent, you know, it's kind of like Oliver Twist and Artful Dodger. I went in for Oliver Twist and got cast as Arthur Dodger. That happened to me in my past too, so it seems to be normal for me. So, and I gave my reading for that role, and you know, and, and it also goes to show that you can't always judge what a character is going to be by what the breakdown says. It always happens in casting, and when the director sees something on tape that they think you know is the character, it's a funny world. What was production on on LIE like? I'm assuming it was all played Long Island as Long Island. Oh yeah, on location. Yep. How long was the production? 24 days. 24 days. Okay. Yeah. Shot on 35. That's the big thing that I wish I had more opportunity to do with when you got to work with it was that should be the, the bigger question as opposed to television versus film. What is life like? Because you've worked in both mediums. What is life like as an actor working on film versus working as an actor on a set on digital? There's a huge difference. And I'm, I'm so happy you brought this up and I haven't jotted on my little notepad to talk about it, but I knew you'd say it first. <laughs> I think the thing I'm most grateful for, for being part of the old school, is that I got to experience the pressures of shooting film and, and even rolling audio, you know, shooting audio or recording music on, on reel-to-reel on tape 
you know, that there's a, there's a certain pressure. I call it, you know, red light syndrome, you know, like when the red light's on or, or for me, when I was growing up from as little as I can remember hearing that sound of, of the film, you know, the mag running through the camera. I don't think that the young actors today know what it was like to feel the pressures of the budget for film. You know, you know that film is not cheap, right? How much does it cost for a, for a reel of film today? 35. <laughs> a lot. You'd be harder pressed to find a lab that could still process it. So many of them have closed, but yeah. Crazy. But uh, I know I sound like an old, an, an old fuck here, but I'm, I'm just being honest that there was just something that I realized transitioning from film to digital is that people were much more prepared. They did, there was much more readiness to perform in that moment rather than what I saw several years later when, when digital came around is that everyone's like, oh, we can just do another one. Oh, let's just take it again. You know, that urgency and that artistry kind of fell away. And, and, and I noticed it very much. By the time it was like 2005 or six, you know, it, it was very clear that the red camera was, was here to stay and that there was, there was no going back. And I noticed the difference significantly. But I'll tell you, until, until you sit, until you have that patience and working with a real film crew and, 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 and seeing the film be processed and handled and put into the, and having camera assistants go to the film truck to make sure it's okay and checking the gate after every, uh, every setup, it just, it just made it feel more real and more like a, like an army, <laughs> like, like you're, you're in combat and then, okay, now we're moving on to the next thing. Be ready to go now. Yeah. I mean, to me, it feels like, cause I haven't unfortunately had the opportunity to, to shoot on film, but I've, I've worked on film sets and I've, I've AC'd on film sets and I'll tell you, ACing for film is no easy task. I mean, everything has to be exact. And that's, and that's kind of the thing is that working in film, like as an AC for film, everything has to be measured out actors have to hit their marks because all I've got is this video tap, which is not a real accurate representation of what's happening. Yep. And all I've got to go on is what I measured out. So, you know, trying to ride focus in a film age versus a digital age are two very different things. Cause in digital age, I can, if I don't know if I hit it exactly, I just play it back and be like, okay, no, it's, it's just a touch soft, but in film, that's there is no there's no playback. <laughs> no, no, and I, I recall that too. And I and, and there's always as far back as I can remember that communication between the director, the DP, and the AC, always saying, you know, okay, can can we pull this off for for that exact reason? It's only a guessing game at some points. You're listening to the Weekend Take. Visit our Patreon page to become a patron of the Weekend Take, and for as little as one dollar, you'll receive exclusive content and perks. And I'm not an actor myself, so I can't speak to it, but talking about the differences between film actors and actors in a digital age, I've noticed that maybe it's just a digital age thing that uh, some actors kind of warm up to the performance. So like take one, take two, take three, uh, they're passable. And like they get into a groove at that point. And that's a, I feel like that's like a digital thing. It is. Talk about that preparedness. Like, you need to be Johnny on the spot, take one when shooting film because there's no warming up to it. Working working with Brian Cox in, L, in in LIE, you know, watching him work for the first time and, you know, going toe to toe with somebody who, who had, you know, 30 years experience before I was standing next to him. <laughs> I, I picked up a, I watched him a lot. He, I learned a lot from him on set and, and watching the, the actors who grew up in the film world. And like you said, uh, they brought a take one every time. And I wanted to, uh, emulate them in that sense always what are some some memorable 
uh, experiences from your your time on LIE? Oh my god, the whole the whole film was memorable. <laughs> it was just uh, I was 15 years old, mind you. Besides being an actor, I was still uh, a crazy hormonal teenager, and but I managed to to know my lines and to lay down a performance that some people still like today, and I'm still proud of myself. And like I said, working with that DP on LIE Romeo, who I think Michael Cuesta also was his DP on Six Feet Under and Dexter, because as you know, when, when you have a relationship between a director and a DP, you don't want, you don't want to break that. You know, when you can communicate something quickly, that's the essence of getting it done and watching Michael and him work together with a low budget. And uh, Romeo did a lot of stuff handheld in that film too. And watching this amazing handheld and steady cam work. And it really gave me hope to, that I had a career in, in the film industry. I said, Oh my God, this is what it's like when people are working hard to get the job done. Every single person on that crew was, was there for the same reason. And nobody asked any questions. And uh, it, it was magical to see a film get done in 24 days. As you know, for a feature, that's, that's impressive. And I think the budget was just over a million dollars back then, which was not a lot of money. And so here you are, you're, you're 15 years old, you're doing LIE. And LIE ends up having a fair amount of success on its own. It goes to, it goes to Sundance, correct? Yep. And I believe it takes home, was it audience, took home audience award or grand jury? One or both, I think. So now here's something that's reached this relatively high level of success that you're a part of. What does that change for you as an actor, as an auditioning actor? Because one of the things that I've learned when pursuing an agent as a cinematographer, which yes, there are agents for cinematographers, is a lot of them, unless you're a grizzled 20-year union veteran or a kind of flavor of the month cinematographer who's got some film that's like for instance, winning something at Sundance, agents kind of only take what's for them, the safe bets and what they can make money off of. But for, for you as an actor, you're in this film, it goes to Sundance, it wins a major award, it gets distributed. What does that do for your stock now as an auditioning actor? And how does your agent you know, work to capitalize on that? That, that film changed my entire career forever. So that, that's what, what happened. And you're right. It, it's, it's one of the most amazing feelings I've ever had as an actor getting that call that we got into Sundance. And I remember the day and then, you know, heading off to Utah. <laughs> and I didn't think that the film, you know, was going to win any awards or anything. I was just a kid. But as soon as we got there and the buzz, the buzz started happening on the film, people were watching it and people were we're feeling it. And, and I could tell immediately. And I was being approached after the first screening by multiple agents and managers every day that I was there. And uh, I, I did change agencies and management after Sundance. I got approached. Uh, I also got approached by an entertainment attorney who is still my very good friend and I work with till this day. It changed my auditioning life forever. I, I had more auditions than I could ever go on. I had to turn things down. That's how much work was coming in. And that part I didn't know. You you actually were able to be in attendance at Sundance for the screening? I was. I was there for every screening. So what's that like as a as a 15-year-old being at Sundance, which is kind of one of the, at least in this country, one of the, the meccas of, of film festivals? Let's just say I, I, I partied my ass off. <laughs> <laughs> it's the party of the year. I mean, Sundance has not changed. And even back then, maybe it was a little less people than there is now, but... You know, the who's who in Hollywood are in this one town for these two weeks. I mean, it's, it's, you cannot walk anywhere or go to any party without seeing 20 celebrities. It's, it's, it's an experience that every actor wants to have. And uh, I, I loved having, you know, 
Michelle Rodriguez bum cigarettes off me off the street and, you know, uh, going, getting invited to the Playboy parties and things like that. When being a 15 year old, pretty cool. I'm sure your mom was super thrilled about that. <laughs> my mom has always been really cool when it comes to, you know, my, my craziness, but maybe more than she should have. You're talking about earlier, we always, no, always hear the bad, never always the good. So a lot of the times when we're hearing about these young actors, child actors, teenage, what always makes the news is the bad. Oh, this one's gotten into drugs and alcohol and they're this and they're that. Like anybody talks about Drew Barrymore as a kid, all they talk about is, oh, she was 10 years old and doing coke. I'm not surprised. What was that temptation like for you as a, as, as a 15-year-old? Like what? I was the one tempting other people to do it. <laughs> I was that guy. Oh, oh. You're the bad influence then. Oh. <laughs> I, 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 was, I was the bad influence, yes. It wasn't very uh, – I was getting yelled at for corrupting people more than people were you know, corrupting me. And I, I, I guess, you know – Oh, dude, ask me anything. I'm open and honest, bro. I'm an open book, bro. Hit, hit, hit me with it. We hear about a lot of this going on like with other young actors and things like that. I mean, what were some of these, like, I guess, less than savory experiences that you either found yourself in or maybe as a young man who – doesn't know better found yourself putting yourself in like what what uh what kind of antics or trouble did you did you get yourself into well let's let's backtrack to the kind of character that i played in lie which i don't for those in your show who haven't seen it which is probably all of them um <laughs> i played a narcissistic bisexual male prostitute who'd do anything for five bucks all right and i was 15 <laughs> most a lot of the mothers too like i said my mom was cool there were so many parents I remember still that, that wouldn't let their kid audition for the movie because they didn't want their kids being a part of it. And to be completely honest with you, I don't think that that movie could be made today in the PC universe that we live in. There's no freaking way in hell that movie would be made, released, or have any critical acclaim. So everything is about timing in this business. So the timing was right. And being in Sundance, like you said, the corruption of, of playing this character, I was playing a character. These I was more into... Uh, keeping, you know, I, I was a hip hop kid who was playing this gothic gay character. You know, it totally was not who I was, but I never had a problem with playing characters, you know, that, and I had a lot of fun playing Gary. I thought it was one of the most fun characters I've ever had. Because of that, a lot of people make assumptions, you know, typecasting is a real thing. And I actually turned down an offer on the movie Party Monster with Seth Green and Macaulay Culkin uh, after LIE because I didn't want to be typecasted as that kind of role. So this is the, the world I was living in. And, and all the people who were into freaky shit and partying came up to me and wanted to talk to me because I was that character, you know? I mean, even for me, you know, and I was a grown adult going to industry mixers and, and film festivals and stuff. I mean, yes, now in this current uh, landscape of the industry, there's a lot less risque stuff going on just for fear of repercussions with the way everything is. But I got to imagine it was... It was still pretty much the Wild West back then when, when, when you're attending these events. Oh, yeah. I mean, think about it. There was nobody – nobody was taking – nobody had smartphones that were videoing or taking pictures of everyone. It was still very – you know, if you were in that club, it was a much more closed door. You know, and I guess I, I'm always a big admirer of golden Hollywood days and I grew up watching all the old movies and <clears throat> in the studio system days – you know, a star and their image, you know, when they were in public was the most important thing. And what they did behind closed doors was, was another, you know, and we do not live in that world today. TMZ would not have it. 
No, no, everything is out for display and public crucifixion at this point. I mean, the things that I were taught to avoid are things that people are doing today to get attention and to be praised in the business. So it's a little, little freaky for me. Did you think you ever found yourself in too deep at any point, or were you, were you aware that you were doing doing some things that probably shouldn't have been doing, and were you able to steer yourself away, or was was there just that much temptation going on? Oh, the temptation was was crazy, and I won't get into too much detail about my family background, but you know, it's, it was always just my my mom and I, and I really don't have a big family or that many people to have kept me in check. And when I moved to Los Angeles around two thousand two you know, my leash was cut. You know, I was, I got my uh, high school diploma at 16 in LA so I could audition full time and I wouldn't have to have a tutor on set anymore, which was very big for me at that time. Being serious, I hated having to, you know, second guess my performance to, you know, doing my social studies homework. I, just, <laughs> I, I, didn't, dig, I, I didn't dig that. When I got out to LA and the leash was cut, you know, I made a lot of mistakes. Um, I'm not a man of regret. Uh, I've learned from all of them, but uh, oh, I, I, I succumbed to temptation uh, all the time, and uh, I was put into positions that uh, maybe I wish I wouldn't have been put into, but I handled them with grace and poise, and I didn't manage to get killed or die of an overdose or anything, so I'm still here. Yeah. And that, and that's a lot more than some of my other uh, fellow actors can say. I've watched a lot of them die. I knew Brad Renfro, saw him die. You know, Heath Ledger, boom, he gone. I hope you're enjoying listening to this first part of our two-part episode, sitting down to talk with actor, writer, and director Billy Kay. Please be sure to check out the second half of the interview in our next episode. Thank you again for listening to The Weekend Take, and have a great day. You've been listening to The Weekend Take. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Visit our Patreon page to become a patron of The Weekend Take, and for as little as $1, you'll receive exclusive content and perks.